There used to be a time not more than five years ago when graduating college students who wanted to get into the music business would flood major label record offices in New York or Los Angeles with specially crafted resumes, all hoping to land a starter assistant job. They had hoped and dreamed that this would be their chance to spread good music to a world hungry for the latest, hottest, or most talented. Well, in 2008, you can pretty much forget about that for the major label system is on the verge of a major label collapse. In 2002, journalist and marketing man Dan Kennedy, needing a real job with real money, landed a gig at Atlantic Records in New York City as Director of Creative Marketing, a title with a lot of hats and not a lot of time. Literally. He lasted at that major label a total of 18 months before being laid off along with hundreds of others after the company was purchased by Edgar Bronfen in a $750 million IPO sale. Now remember, 50 million of that 750 million went to Bronfen himself. Classic. Though it was only six years ago when Kennedy joined the label, the downloading culture of the 21st century had just begun to take its toll in the music industry, causing ever-declining CD sales, the closure of record retailers nationwide, and the before-mentioned bloodbaths of layoffs that hit the record companies across the board. Kennedy's time at the upper echelon of the major label world has been capsulized and humorized in his new book, Rock On, available now through Algonquin Books. The book is a fast and funny read through all that went wrong at these labels, from the egos, to the mismanagement, to the waste of hundreds of thousands of dollars on events and promotions that were as useful as taking all of that money, walking down to the Hudson River, and dumping it over the 59th Street Pier. If you've ever wanted to know what it was like working at a major record label before the consolidation, before the layoffs, and before you, the consumer, took over, Rock On ain't a bad place to start that journey. This is Mike Shea. Would you say that this is a tell-all book, a book... Um, it's, it's been, a, uh, some people have said, uh, one person said, I'll, I'll take it out of the Fox News uh, version. One person said um, it was a uh, revenge book, and another person said that it was a whistleblower book. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> like film noir. <laughs> it's a candy apple whistleblower. Why? It's a gin mill tell-all. <laughs> um, a whistleblower. Um, you know, this book was written with humor and heart. That was the intention. You know, the laughs um, ideally come at mostly my expense, I would hope. Um, and, um, you know, is it, is it a... Is it a <laughs> you know, is it just one of those is observations on life going, wow, that's odd. <laughs> Can you tell I'm really worried about calling it a tell-all? Um, <laughs> well, it is a scathing tell-all, and now I need to leave this area, this entire <laughs> Cleveland region. Goodbye. <laughs> Um, as as did most of the music industry, by the way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, it's it's certainly not unfair to call it a tell-all. I certainly told everything I saw from the front row seat that I had for the brief time I had it. You know, it's not to mm -hmm. be, it's not to be mistaken as um, any kind of. You know, it's not hitmen. It's not um, an executive tell-all. It's just a guy. I'm just a guy. I was sitting on my couch. I like music. So does everyone else in the world. You know, the phone rang. I took a job. You know, here's my report. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, you know, um, it's not Howling at the Moon. It's not Hitman. It's, you know, it's not Walter Yetnikoff's book. It's, it's not, um, 
you know, it's just what happens when an ordinary guy like us who really loves music um, and who's loved music all his life gets a phone call um, just about as random as someone calling up and saying, hey, any chance you want to do some uh, some orthodontics work? You know, could you be an orthodontist for us? You know, like, I mean, my I, I literally just sort of went, I've listened to music all my life. I've watched a ton of TV. I've seen a lot of TV commercials. I could probably make TV commercials about music for a label, you know, it, and so it's not a business book and it's not a, it's not a big platinum executive comes to the table and tells, it's just an ordinary guy who got in the door for a year and a half and is willing to swipe his ID and, you know, pull you in and let you look around before he, you know, gets in trouble for doing so. When you walked into, we can, I mean, at this point it's common knowledge. This was Atlantic Records. Around the Warner Music, we'll say Time. It was Time Warner uh, Group at the time. Time Warner, and then it turned into Warner Music Group soon after that. Uh, and this was about what, from what I can understand, about two thousand two, two thousand. Uh, two thousand two, yes. Okay, so um, when you walked in there, being a music fan, um, it, it, and you kind of describe this in the book before our listeners, what were some of the shocks to your system that you were surprised to find within the system up there? Um, the atmosphere. Basically, basically everything on pages one through two hundred and forty-two. Okay, well, could you summarize <laughs> um, that? <laughs> no, um, you know, the the shocks. I mean, the shocks were there were a million of them. You know, I, I suppose the first thing was that, you know, I'm not contrary to um, the book. I'm, I'm I definitely Forrest Gumped my way through this gig, but I'm not. Like I don't have mental difficulties, <laughs> although, <laughs> although by about page eleven you might, mm, when you see some of the prat, you know, like the errors I make, you might be convinced I do. But <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to modestly say is I'm a relatively bright man, and and I didn't, I, I wasn't delusional enough to think I was going to go into this job and I was going to walk in and it was going to be a skyscraper filled with people like you know. Tuning Les Pauls and like, you know, Keith Richards would come out of an office and, and ask me what I thought of this riff, you know, and I would tell him. And, you know, I wasn't I wasn't that delusional. But one of the first shocks that really hit me is just sort of walking in. It was like, man, this is really sort of a conservative office. You know, like we came in here today to Alternative mm-hmm. Press to the studio, um, the recording studio. And it's like, you know, you walk in and it's to me, it was instantly like, oh, my God, this is just like. This is everything I've loved since age nine. It's drum sets. It's, um, you know, like platinum albums and stuff on the wall. And it's like all these killer arcade games, pool tables, you know, like Mm -hmm. even the lighting in here is like every arcade I ever hung out in, you know, when I was little in Southern California. So I think the biggest shock was walking into that skyscraper in New York City on Sixth Avenue and just sort of going, wow, this place is kind of like an ad agency, but a little more conservative, you know? <laughs> Which seems a little odd. Yeah, it was like kind of my first tip-off. That and seeing like a guitar hanging in this guy's office, this Stratocaster, um, and it had like all these backstage passes, you know, sort of like a status thing to hang, like 200 backstage passes on on this guitar on his wall. And there just like wasn't a nick on the pick guard. You know, there wasn't one scratch on the pick guard. There wasn't one, you know, the fretboard, you know, <laughs> looked perfectly brand new. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of another sign, isn't it? It's already a museum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, without, like, it, without ever, ever becoming like, archival. Um, did you, um, did you, you kind of talk about in the book about 
um, after a while, you kind of feel that you need to fit in a little bit with your office supplies and the, and the material in your office. And uh, is is it considering that you know a lot of you know a lot of kids that are you know want to get in the music industry think that it's so um, you know it's all anarchy and you know it's kind of like everybody's everybody's <laughs> right, office right. is like a dorm room. <laughs> so, but you kind of find that there's a pressure to kind of go upscale with things and and uh, kind of fit in, and you're out dropping about fifteen hundred dollars on office supplies and picture frames. Yeah, yeah. One of the most, I mean, you know, one of the most important things that I need to be honest about, you know, with this book and and with this interview talking with you is that, you know, it's not like I'm I'm this holier than thou sort of narrator in this book going like, "Oh god, you should see what the executives have done this time." You know, like <laughs> I mean, no, listen, I got in there and you know, my sort of vision was like it is going to be anarchy. I'm going to be keeping it real. Whatever corporate bullshit Whatever corporate BS, I... It's a podcast. Um, you can say that. <laughs> I, uh, whatever goddamn corporate... <laughs> Keep going. Go with the Tourette's. Go with your it's Tourette's. It's a podcast. I can just swear for like it's 11 minutes. Exactly. Michael Coops hasn't <clears throat> figured this out yet. See, I still haven't kicked my corporate sort of savvy. I, I gave you a clean take right after I said bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> um, right after, you know, like... like you know, I kind of had this feeling of like, I'm going to go in there and, and, you know, whatever there is that isn't real, I'm going to keep real with me. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to be this cross kind of between like Henry Rollins and a, and a, and a, I don't know, executive, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to, it's going to be rad, you know, like, and when people try to, you know, get me to do stuff that's not really me, I'm just going to be like, you know what, I got to kind of do this my way. And um, with search and destroy cufflinks. Right? Exactly. And right. then, you know, you walk into the break room and, and I saw this dude and he had like tattoos, you know, all the way up his arms and neck and face and scalp and inside his ears. And, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I was like, oh, right on, you know, another intense dude keeping it real, even though. I look like this. Um, <laughs> I thought somehow I'd found <laughs> a soulmate. And, and I was like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, oh, pretty good. And he's like, He's like, what are you up to? And I'm like, just getting a cup of coffee, man. And then I made some crack about like Starbucks. You know, I made some crack about the corporate coffee place downstairs. I wasn't going there. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go downstairs, man. Six bucks for a latte or whatever. This is before I started sucking them down by the dozens on an expense account. But um, I was like, <laughs> you know, before I could tell you what the difference between a caramel macchiato and like a, you know, double pump vanilla non-fat, you know, whatever. So, um. I, I was like, yeah, I'm not going downstairs, man. Just make it right here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm like, hmm. And then um, he was like, I was like, how do you work this machine or whatever? He's like, oh, I'll show you. He's like, I just actually just got one of these for my kitchen. We're remodeling our whole kitchen and blah, blah, blah. We just bought this house and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, my God, what? You know, it was like, <laughs> and there was like this moment where I was like, we're allowed to have nice stuff and be intense, you know, like, and keep it real. Like, seriously, dude? Like, I was so, like, it was that moment where I, um, you know, it's like finding out that we're allowed to like Prince. Remember that moment where it was like, <laughs> huh? Oh, man. Like, I've liked him since Purple Rain, man. Like, I thought you guys would kick my ass. Like, so, so right at that moment, I was like, dude, sweet. I want like a kitchen with espresso machines and stuff. You know, like, I got to make this work. You know, like, hmm. you know, it, I went from like, I'm going to keep it real to like, well, you know, let's let's make this work. This is a pretty neat opportunity, you know. <laughs> it's so sad, but but so yeah, I was you know, I describe it in the book as being 
the poor kid in a sitcom script who gets adopted by the rich. I just didn't want to rock the boat. You know, I was like, God, <laughs> I, God damn it, I have to go get some clothes. I have to dress like these people. I have to talk like them. I have to fit in. Like, this is sweet. You know, like, I, this, this can't end. This is my only chance of being a normal adult with, like, a house, you know. <laughs> So can you – this may be a good time to bring up the, uh, the management structure at the label, the, 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 um, the way that – I think one of the things in the book that seems to be uh, uh, a lot of people that were in the industry, because I think there's more people that used to be in the industry than there are in it anymore mm. um, because of all these layoffs and consolidations, uh, is the way that you – uh, nailed it as much as the way that the corporate structure is set up, and I'm kind of wondering if uh, I, uh, it, I'll, uh, I'll I'll I can I'll say the uh, the uh, the position, and then maybe you can just describe it briefly for our listeners here. Okay, sure. Um, it, you say that there's an upper management, a glorified middle manager, a glorified foot soldier, and at the bottom the real foot soldier. So mm -hmm. let's just. As it is in the book, uh, let's start at the top, upper management. Describe this upper management person at a major record label, in well, your view. Well, you know, and, and to sort of paraphrase what I say in the book, it, it's, um, okay, this is the point where you find out I didn't write this book. Oh, um, I have no idea what that, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but so, you did read the audio book, so, so you did, put, right, you did but, do this. That's this, right. right. I got it off iTunes, so I know what this guy said. <laughs> um, you know, the upper, the upper management is, um, they're just, you know, they're, they're uh, they are they, they have their own air supply. You know, it's on. It's a rarefied sort of diamond air that comes on a tank that they carry on their back. No, they are. The upper management are really just a mystery to me. You know, they are. The, when you first meet one of them, you're like, it's it's that that watershed moment in your life where you go, oh my god, this guy has 140 million dollars, and he's not that much smarter than me. You know, like, you know, all through like. My 20s, I always thought, like, when you meet someone who has, like, 140 or $200 million, they are going to be so eloquent. They are going to be so intelligent. They are going to be so well-versed in this world that you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, no wonder I just have, like, checking plus overdraft protection and a modest savings account. You know, like, this guy is a genius. Um, but, but, you know, I met them in their um, – I don't know. There, there were certainly some guys who like had amazing track records, you know, who just who signed like who sold like you know eighty million records for the company and had been working there since they were twenty and signed an incredible string of hits and obviously had like an otherworldly hunch for talent. But then there were guys like in that same stratosphere who were just like you're like, what did you do again? You know, like, <laughs> huh? You were at that label when that band blah blah blah. So therefore, you are. They just seemed – basically their thing was like they were at a label when a band had an absolute superstar smash success and they kind of tied themselves to it, you know? Like I don't know how you do that. If I knew how to do that, I mean, you know, if I knew how to do that, I mean, Mike, you wouldn't even be able to address me directly right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'd be asking these questions to a handler. You definitely wouldn't be taking a cab from the airport. That's, that's right. Sure. Maybe a – um, rich cab. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, you said in the book you talk what about. What do you call him again? Limousine. Thank you, you. You talk about in the in the book um, uh, Rush Hair. Am I correct? Is that Rush. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm not the best with coming up with names for characters. Someone recently um, 
in review or something sort of noted that, and I have to agree with that critic. I, I didn't. I clearly didn't spend <laughs> too much time coming up with nuanced names for the characters. But yes, Rush Hare is one. So of would them. he be one of those upper management? So could you? Or would he be the uh, glorified middle manager? No, he's, no, he's more upper management. No, he's upper. Yeah. So could you describe that with him and with that character in context with what you were just describing here? Like he, he you stated that he was he had he basically you weren't too sure if he had found Rush or he had discovered him or stumbled upon him or knew somebody who was the basis brother or Yeah, he had something to do with Rush. That's kind of the way I, I knew all of those people. You know, like like <laughs> that's sort of the terms I had in my head. What like or that's the way Valerie would explain certain things to me. Like I remember this, you know, whether it was Rush Hair, you know, like I would just sort of like in the hallway one day get a very quick sort of like he blah 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 rush when they were blah 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 rush rush you know and you're like okay I get it something 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 rush you know something about rush he is tied to rush therefore he is huge you know and and you sort of put it together in your head that way I I just kind of put it together like sort of like that Gary Larson car- cartoon of what a dog hears when you say very complicated <laughs> things to it and you're like oh hey dog you're a really great dog what are you doing today and it's here's like blah 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 dog blah 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 dog <laughs> I just heard like blah 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 rush blah 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 rush and um you know there was someone else like that oh when when we went to shoot I went to shoot this commercial with um Fat Joe for his album um and you know, she found this office that we could use because after I, I, you know, after my strange foray into Amit, the the late Amit Erdogan's office, uh, hoping to use it as a location for a hip hop television commercial, uh, which was <laughs> a very a very fruitless uh, wish on my part, obviously, and <laughs> and whatever the details of that are too painful to recall, but I know they're in this book. Um, at some point, I have, to, I have to stop reliving the humiliation. But um, so when that didn't work out, Valerie took me to another guy's office, and I mean, this office was was sweet. You know, um, it was like pr- bigger than my apartment. Um, it's you know, it had all of the, you know this just incredible furniture that looked like it should be a permanent installation at MoMA in any city. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, what? Are you sure this isn't kind of a thing for visitors? You know, like. <laughs> I think that's the Philippe Stark chair that, you know, oh, look, there's the Barcelona chair, you know, like, oh, look, there's the, you know, Le Corbusier LC5. That was a brilliant piece of design. And it's, you know, like, and and then he had, um, you know, stereo systems that just, like, you've never seen this stuff in the consumer sectors. It's like, you know, all these tubes and like this and then you're like, oh, my God, you know, like, put on a hard hat. We're going to go over near the stereo. It's like, it was intense. But anyway, and I was like, I was just kind of staring at the place going, uh, whose is this? And I don't know, you know, it seems like we're going to have about as much luck as uh, I had with Amit Erdogan's office. You know, this is pretty beautiful in here. And she was like, oh, blah, 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 Madonna, blah, 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 won't you assign, blah, 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 Madonna, Madonna, <laughs> Warner's Madonna. You know, it's like... And then, oh, and the other sentence I sort of picked up in, in all the jargon was, he comes in about once a month. <laughs> I was like, let me get this straight. You know, it was like, I mean, this just like sits here for him when he decides to come in. I mean, it was odd. It was like, um, you know, you've been to, I- to Ikea. 
So you go to Ikea and there's these really, you know, big living room setups and, and they look like living rooms, but you're like, I don't think anyone really comes here. You know, like you can kind of <laughs> tell. You're like, I don't think that's a prop over there. You know, like. <laughs> you say that at the end of the book where you're out, uh, out in Colorado, you're off of the Rocky Mountain place and you, you uh, come across uh, Michael Eisner's house mm-hmm. out there and it was huge. It's some huge place. And the guy says, oh, he's never there. Never there, evidently. Just <laughs> thought, you know, ah, oh, here's a canyon. Let's stick a, a shopping mall in it and make it my home. I mean, when I saw it, I was like, <laughs> the, like the comment I made to the guy when we were, you know, that's the part in the book where, you know, I've been, well, we can't, I guess, give too much away. But, but you know, Spoiler suffice alert. it to say, there were 12 dogs dragging my ass down a snow-covered path <laughs> in the mountains of Colorado. And... At one point, um, they stopped, and, and we're standing there on the edge of this cliff looking down in the valley, and and I see the top of <laughs> what I now know is Michael Eisner's secondary residence, um, and it's um, it's huge. And my initial comment was, like, I was shaking my head sort of in shame, like, oh, God, you know, and and – and the guy was like, yeah. And I was like, why? Why? When there's a huge shopping center right down the road in Snowmass. You know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, it's a house. That's Michael Eisner, the guy from Disney's house, dude. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And he's like, yeah, he's there like once or twice a year or something. And I was just like, so it's an, it's, yeah, it's kind of an insane. Those executives at that level, whether they're in the movie industry or the, or the record industry, insane level of wealth. Groundbreaking news. You heard it here first, folks, from Dan Kennedy. Huge executives in entertainment business, wealthy. <laughs> That's the report on that. Okay, glorified middle manager. What is a glorified middle manager at a record label? Glorified middle manager is sort of like you can't really, if someone asks about you, you know, people are not prone to say, blah, 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 Madonna, signed, you know, blah, 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 rush. They're, they're just prone to go like, you know, they'll throw out more sort of clerical terms, you know, sort of um, more like, uh, no, 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 the promotions for everything in North America, you know, blah, 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 file the video, blah, blah, you know, like <laughs> impressions from blah, 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 a crossover from AOR to CHH, you know, you're like, huh? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, I didn't, none of that sounded super sexy and it didn't have a pop star's name tied to it. Yet, you know, I know that person has a corner office and I know that, you know, they make a lot of money. But, you know, it's more like like the, the, the sort of words those people are tied to are like, you know, promotions, you know, impressions, you know, crossover, top ten. You know, they just sort of uh, – it's a weird thing. I mean, if you just, if you just fell to earth and, and it was explained to you, it would just be like, huh? You know, they, <laughs> what do they do? They call their radio stations and tell them to play a record? You know, like, yep, yes, they do. And they make – Exactly. And they, and they like outgross, you know, like, I don't know, a neurosurgeon or something. I have no idea. But it's like, you know, the value we put on. This is a teacher. You know, if you just came down to earth, what, what is this person? A teacher. They teach these smaller humans who will be the future humans of the planet. You know, like, wow, that's pretty, you know. And they get paid $40,000 exactly. a year. They get $40,000 a year. Without reimbursement. What's this person do? They keep calling back Z100 and saying, are you sure you don't want to play The Darkness starting this week? You know, like, <laughs> okay, and what do they make? $350,000 a year. You know, like, huh. Real? Okay. <laughs> All right. I guess, man. That's the way that rolls. All right. <laughs> um, your next position down the pecking order is Glorified Foot Soldier. Glorified Foot Soldier. Um, you can't, you're, you're really, you know, you're not, 
urinating in the executive washroom next to really powerful people, you know, um, which might be fine. I, I always, actually, I don't know that I have a fear of success, but I do have a fear of having to share a bathroom with someone very powerful who's like, I think that'd just be nothing but awkward, you know, like, like you have some key and you go into this and it's like, oh, hey, you know, like, how's everything going, Dad? You know, like, oh, fine. The company's doing great, sir. You know, like, oh, God, you know, what are we doing in here together? But, um, it just seems really strange, but but the glorified foot soldier is, um, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, you've got some sort of Rain Man. I sort of, I, I think I might have considered myself a glorified foot soldier because you, you've just, you don't have much to hang your hat on except like a Rain Man sort of talent to do something well, something really weird, but you do it well, and it sells records. Not enough that you'll ever have like a platinum album hanging in your office, but. You do, you know, maybe you're like super, super good at writing. Therefore, you write little blurbs for Women's Day magazine when a new Jewel album comes out. And, and you know, your bosses think they see a sales spike and they think about the, you know, Women's Day piece that you wrote, you know, the 50, you know, or 400 words of copy and, you know, next to the Jewel mini and, uh, and, um, and, you know. That that you know that's sort of your gig. I'm not saying that that's what I did. I did cooler stuff than that, obviously. But <laughs> just saying some fool must have written a jewel ad for Women's Day magazine. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> and then your final one is the real foot soldier, which is obviously the unsung hero. These people make things work. Um, they are they are there. They bust their ass and they get things done. And largely, um. You know, this book is dedicated to the to the real foot soldiers of the music business. I mean, um, not literally; it's dedicated to my girlfriend. But um, <laughs> figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, it's um, you know dedicated to them. But um, they they make stuff happen. Seriously, they they bust their ass and they love music. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is, most of the hard work that they do and most of the results that they make happen. Um, are sort of claimed by the person right above them in their department. You know, they 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 are underpaid, overworked, and in just about every meeting that they're not invited to, someone is taking credit for what they did. Um, and then, but but uh, and who are I the ones that usually a... get featured in the Rolling Stone article once a year, where they do the these people work in the record? You know, you can get into the record industry, and they're all the, like the the college reps. Would they be glorified foot soldiers? Um, I don't know. They're kind of in a world all their own because they're like regional college reps. And, you know, I, I never I was in the hive. You know, I don't know what was going on outside of it, you know, like out outside of the, the calm drone of huge air conditioning and nylon carpet and, and the sort of mild, you know, codeine buzz that I got from having a steady job. Um, uh, I don't know what was going on, you know, in that so-called real world out there. Fools were out there. Mike, dealing with everyday problems like love and death. I, I, I don't think know. that's what they said in the 9-11 Commission report, too. But Seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to sort of be, yeah, to share something with, yeah, the 9-11 Commission report. <laughs> well, let's talk about something happy for a second as we take our first music break. Let's talk about... Let's just let's just... I know you're checking your, you're checking your iPhone to see what's on there, but I'm going to make this one really easy for you. You know, you got into the music industry uh, initially because of your love of music. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk about <clears throat> when you were younger, you talked to your parents, bribed your parents uh, into uh, getting you a drum set. Yep. 
And so what were the two songs that you play consistently to on your drum set that were like your favorite songs to this day mm -hmm. that you sit there and you tap on the back of the taxi cab uh, driver's seat to if he happens to be playing it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> the kids listening to the podcast should know that I'm about 91 <laughs> years of age. Um, having said that, I, I always, the, the, oh, man, the saddest fantasy I had with my... <laughs> <laughs> with my little drum set, was that I could nail the um, the Bun E. Carlos solo on Live at Budokan by Cheap Trick. Um, if, uh, like, put on the spot, I can't remember exactly what song. I'm trying to think what song it is. Like, it goes, hang on, let me just run through the solo in my head and I'll remember the song. Ding, 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 ding. Remind me never to play against uh, you in rock band. <laughs> it goes right into, well, you made... <laughs> Ain't that a shame, when the cover. <laughs> Ain't that a shame. And okay. I forget what song is between. I can remember that, too, if you let me do the whole front end of the solo, but I'm sure we don't have that much time <laughs> for Rain Man here to figure out. But uh, but I had... It was so it was so pathetic, but in my like nine-year-old brain, I was just convinced on my little Toys R Us drum set that I could just nail that solo. Like, I was just like, this is uncanny. My talent is otherworldly. Like, <laughs> gather around everyone and listen to the solo off of, you know, live at Budokan. Listen to me nail the Bun E. Carlos drum work. And, um, and people would listen patiently, but I remember one time I played it at my friend Scott's house. Like, I slept over there and he had like these three unbelievably cute sisters and I was nine they were all like 16 and I was like I'm gonna close this deal um <laughs> like I'm gonna somehow rent a Corvette and impress them but um he had a drum set and it was like way better than mine he had like this five-piece Ludwig and I was like god Scott does not deserve that my talent is like prodigal and I have like a Toys R Us set like wait till the girls hear me kick it tonight and um <laughs> I was like hey Scott can we like you know can we uh you want to play your drums a little bit? You know, is that cool? Your parents freak out or anything? And, and I didn't talk like Wooderson from Dazed and Confused when I was nine, but for some <laughs> reason I just saw fit to, to, to do that. But anyway, I totally hit what I thought was that solo. And um, his and I, I, I was just like looking all like intense at his sisters while I played it. I was like, ding, 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 ding. And in my head it was like, but I'm sure like in real life it was like, ding, 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 ding. You know, and like they started giggling and left the room. And I was like, that was like the day I was like, I may not be that hot of a drummer. Like that was a very sad, sad. That's when the sadness started. That's when the sadness started. <laughs> right. Age nine. Then it, then it turns into a VH1 special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But off stage, things were falling apart for Dan. Yeah, I think I think uh, the bi I think Biography Channel took it to the next level. They have this new show called Last Twenty Four, which is the last twenty four hours of celebrities of uh, their lives. Of their, yeah, the first one's John like, Belushi. Yeah, no, we counted. Yeah, well, you know, that's such a we are a drive by accident society now. So that's such a sick idea for a show. But it'll probably be very popular. 
who wants to be remembered by their last 24 hours if you went out like in a really bad way? You know, like your hope, like I, I would think the last thing you're thinking is you're like heading towards the well, light. And somebody, the, obviously at marketing, a biography does. Uh, so. so terrible. Like your whole career is just eclipsed by, you know, like, <laughs> no, let's just get to you having a heart attack and screaming at, you know, your manager because the smack was bad. You know, like, okay, I guess there's also two decades of brilliant work, but whatever. We need a second song. <laughs> What's your second one? I can pick any song in the yeah, world. Yeah, any any song in the world. God. It's available on catalog. Seriously, it's available to us. Well, here's where the editor is going to come in. While I sit here for like 20 minutes in total silence, trying to think of the perfect song <laughs> that would speak volumes about my character. Is somebody at a Virgin Megastore is going to come up to you and say that was a good choice. Would it? Would, would it be? <laughs> yeah, like you know, like the sad sort of like Ricky Gervais, like David Brent in me wants to be like all, oh yeah, track two from the first uh, Arcade Fire album coming at you. Who cares that I'm forty? Um, but in all honesty, I'd love to play um, Left of the Dial by The Replacements.
A friend of mine in an unsigned band that's really popular with the readers mm-hmm. sent me an email just last night, and he said the following. We just got back from the West Coast. We did a showcase-type show for reps from Warner, Atlantic, Capital, and Epitaph. Got to hand the record off to all of them, and they all seemed to dig. So having been at these major labels now, you were there for 18 months, and observing the system, what is happening next with that tape, with that disc uh, at the label level, and you, from what you've experienced, that they probably don't realize? Um, you know, I, I don't... Uh, what discussions I, are being had? What meetings are being held? You know, my experience is, well, A, first of all, good for them, because um, it is, and I, and I say this in the book as well, that it is a major accomplishment to, to stick to your guns and to play until these people are forced to notice you, you know, um, that, that, it, that is nothing to take lightly. Um, you know, what happens after that? You're, you're totally asking the wrong guy. And I, I certainly hope that that band, if they're listening, understands, like takes whatever <laughs> I have to say with a grain of salt. Um, because <laughs> guys, I lasted, you know, 18 months in that building. Um, so having said that, you know, my impression of what happened, uh, um, you know, they're all going to have to wear uh, neon-colored tank tops and, and bleach their hair. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, my impression was that, that people go out to those showcases and they, and they bring back the, um, the album. And, and, and then they, um, you know, I don't know how they do it. The guys I saw would be, you know, the most successful guy that I saw um, who would be in the position of doing that um, had this uncanny way of like, always he was teflon right like he loved something loved something then if like at the first slight turn of the tide you know internally like if someone in the office was like i don't know if we love that he he had this weird way of like you could never peg him for loving something or hating something he both loved it and hated it you know it's like (laughs) i'm everything i'm switzerland i'm neutral but i'm also a warhead you know like (laughs) huh you know it's just like any you could never like pin him definitively And and he's majorly successful you know he's huge um and and which always struck me as odd i always just thought like if you're that big and you're that successful wouldn't you just like totally have the balls to be like this band period you know like i don't care what so and so on the 23rd floor said you know um but he was always like yeah i love them um, huh yeah hey love them hate them hmm? uh-huh you know just say like very vague things like it like you know if if an uh, if a record you know what came in and, and everyone was optimistic about it and then it didn't do so hot you know it'd be like I don't know. He just, I don't even know how to do it in parody because it's just so good. It's like a politician thing. It's like, you know, like, well, you know, didn't you sign them? I did and I didn't. Uh, we had a lot of support early on and I was really behind what I thought I saw there. But um, what I thought I saw wasn't what we came out with in the end there. And there was a big education process. I mean, that happened at radio. That happened. At, we saw it happen across the board. So I didn't, I didn't get on board in that process until later in the game. But we certainly obviously had higher hopes for the album. But I like the album. I don't like the album. I like the album. don't like the album. <clears throat> <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, so, huh? You know. He just had a way of never being responsible, never being uh, liable, I guess, in, in the way anything ever went. And I think that's essential to surviving in, in corporate rock, evidently, is just to be totally neutral. You know, just wear like a white jumpsuit, you know, like have no, you know, like shave off your eyebrows so they don't give away your facial expression, you know. But um, 
Wow. What did I have at the airport? I had Starbucks <laughs> and LSD. That's right. I, think, okay. I thought it was a cookie, which is very I close. I thought it was a cookie, very close. but I think that thing happened that my parents always warned me about, where if you don't keep your thumb on your drink at a party, someone will put LSD in it. <laughs> because I just suggested people wear white jumpsuits and shave their eyebrows if they want to succeed in a corporate book environment. Book two. Yes. Book two. A sad book. Um, it, so let's say they did get signed. You describe in the book uh, this uh, experience that you had to go through, which I've actually been through a number of times myself, where they bring in the lead singer and the guitarist to do an acoustic mm-hmm. set in the conference room <laughs> for everybody in the floor. Yeah, that is an interesting moment. That... Um, yeah, it's awkward to put it mildly. You go into someone's office, so you're at work, and you and, and it's someone, these guys have just gotten a deal or whatever, and then exactly as you put it, the, I don't know what conventional wisdom says, hey, awesome, like, four-piece, you know, sort of power pop, you know, band. Why not come in with one acoustic guitar and a tambourine and, you know, <laughs> do it live in Valerie's office next to the fax machine? You're like, who the hell, like, when, is that, who's, that's not a good decision. Like, I don't know. They usually have, like, four Marshall stacks, you know, and, like, a six-piece drum set with, like, you know, I mean, but the bands, you know, God bless them, I guess they're odd, you know, they they want things to work out or whatever, so they do it. And, um, and um, yeah, and it, it's just odd because you're there, it's a work day, and you're in your boss's office, and and these songs are always about, you know, it's not like, it's not like, oh, come on in and just listen to this little bridge in, in D that I'm thinking of working on, you know? It's like, come on in, I wanna, I'm going to play you, um, you know, sort of a, a, a song about, uh, you know, my struggles with addiction and uh, some emotional problems I've been having in a uh, sexual situation. So come on in, you know, I'm going to, it's like, what are you playing, dude? This is awkward. It's a work day. I'm standing next, next, next to my boss. Right. And, and they're framed photos of her family. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, you know, so, and, 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 you know, there's a part in the book where, uh, I get a little choked up <laughs> listening to a, a guy play a love song in Valerie's office, but whatever. You know, I'm a human being, okay, Mike? Damn. <laughs> I'm sick of the standards this I think a theme that goes to. through your whole book is, is, is just how, uh, how astonished you are after a while. I mean, it, it kind of settles in and you seem to come to grips with it, but the excessiveness of mm. the industry as mm-hmm. a whole. And then, and then uh, you know, being from uh, being on the outside looking in at this glass tower, um, you begin to realize how things uh, got out of control when digital downloading started taking off and, and how the, 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 the company was not prepared. So, I mean, it's, do you think that this, this excessiveness now that you've... Um, let me rephrase that. I, how do you think the... Why was there not somebody standing up there at the time going, um, do we really need to be spending this kind of money? <laughs> I do not know. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, business schools should study it, you know, for decades as a, as a, a negative case study. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it is absolutely wacko. The only thing like I can, I can even start to compare it to is like, if I understand, like, I don't know if it's at a certain depth of scuba diving or if it's at a rapid ascent from that depth in scuba diving. But at some point, like 
bubbles of oxygen can get in your blood. And I'm not really talking about the bends, but you just become insane, basically. Like, I, I've heard people call it bubble happy, and I've heard um, people call it... Uh, well, you know, bottom line is just batshit crazy, you know, and, and I don't know what causes it because I'm not much of a scuba diving enthusiast. But um, in the record business, there is this, um, as I say, batshit crazy um, sort of element where it's just backwards day every day. It's crazy day. It's loopy day. It's happy straw, crazy straw, nutso, take a helicopter. Why not? You know, like if you were like, <laughs> you know, where are we going? The Hamptons. Great. Land something up on the roof, you know, call, you know, what kind of helicopter are we going to take? Executive helicopter. Well, tell them to make it out of crystal. Okay. They're going to make it out of Waterford crystal, sir. It'll be over here in a minute. Like <laughs> it's, and meanwhile, every single headline in every single paper and every single trade magazine is like sales decline another X percent, you know, like sales decline, blah, 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 you know, like. Losing, losing grip with, you know, the consumer, losing track of what fans want, you know, blah, blah, blah. All the stories that we've all read. But, like, you would think, right? But no. I mean, there, 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 there's a lot of restructuring, quote, unquote, um, going on, which, you know, all, I think all the major labels have, have restructured now. And it's, um, as far as I can tell, the, the new structure is uh, four guys who make uh, $6 million a year and then... Um, uh, like 1,500 people under them uh, looking for a job <laughs> in a different business altogether. Um, it, 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 is, it is insanity. It is insanity. And there was always this mild – for me, it kind of felt like uh, – mm, I hope it's not a tired analogy, but sort of like, like being in a family that has a very obvious problem that no one really talks about. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, oh, this – Sat in our meeting and chocolate chip just booked a suite at the Mondrian for two weeks. Uh, all right. Uh, I guess everything's great. You know, it was like. <laughs> Dad does not this... have a drinking problem. Right. right. It was like, that's, that's, that's a drinking problem. <laughs> he has a couple. Sure. No, the dining room table broke on its own. Like, <laughs> it, it's just very. I, I do remember like when a memo went around our whole floor saying like no expense accounts. You know, you guys are going downstairs and getting a sandwich for lunch. I'm sorry, but it's out of your own pocket. These are really weird times. You know, it's like, okay, well, that does make sense to me because I know what it's like when, when times are tough and you got to like watch money and, and okay, that's fair, you know. But it was like the, <laughs> that memo no sooner hit everybody's inbox and like Miss um, Chocolate Chip, as I refer to her in the book, like yelled out her door from her office to her assistant to upgrade her to her, like book her a suite at the Mondrian for like a week or something because she wanted, you know, it was like, huh? And then like I literally picked up Billboard magazine and I'm like feeling guilty for not like using both sides of paper, you know, in the printer. I'm like, oh, that's kind of screwed up, man. That side was blank. I could have just done it, run it through, you know, if I wasn't so lazy. And then, like, the headline in Billboard is, like, the new chairman's contract was for $50 million. And I was like, dude, we just got a no sandwiches memo. And this guy's getting $50 million and she's staying at the Mondrian for a week and a half. And it was like... 50 million, like it seemed like a Simpsons episode. Like I, I was literally just like, the headline may have said like, no sandwiches for underlings, you know, new chairman gets 50 gajillion zillion trillions. <laughs> you know, it was just so Mr. Burns. It was unbelievable. It's very new economy. Yeah. Very I, new economy. 
Ooh, I don't like the new economy. I like the old <laughs> one where everybody made some money. Now, now, I mean, you really you you saw both ends of the stick, and you know, if you talk to people, labels, and you take them out to dinner, and you, or they take you out to dinner. Well, usually now it's more you take them out to dinner, but uh, <laughs> expense great. accounts are gone. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and uh, you sit down with them and 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 you start to talk to them. And they talk about oh this manager, this manager, this band, and the guy's always calling me up. And why don't we have this? And where's the cover Rolling Stone? And why don't we have these fifty ads in these markets? Mm-hmm. And blah blah blah. <clears throat> and there seems to be a this continual fight between artists who are expecting something from these bigger labels and the labels that are uh, that seem to be playing defense at the same time and it seems like there's a, the, the as you kind of say, kind of describe in your book there's like this great um deception going on like uh, from the from the label to the band and then and then the band gets mad at the label and then the label starts wondering why are they getting mad at us and you know it's like yeah. why do, why does it have to be that way what caught like you know what? I don't I don't know and in fairness you know you raise a good point that that um you know, I and I, I certainly didn't do this in, in the book. I mean, book, do the labels overpromise? Um, do they tend to do that too much, you think? I don't know. You know, you're talking about a scenario where you're going, you're talking about, A, sleeping with Satan. Okay? <laughs> so you're now, like, breaking down the act of, like, no, would you say it's weird when you get to the apartment, you know, that, like, he wants you to take your clothes off right away? You know, like, well, I don't know, Mike, because we're talking about sleeping with the devil. You know, like... So h- how much of this do you want to break down in terms of what's appropriate or like, you know, what you should have worn to the devil's house before you slept with him? Like, should you have brought cab fare because Satan doesn't let people stay over? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. We could break it down sort of all day. But the bottom line, you know, the, the sort of thing that I do in fairness, it, this this book isn't about taking cheap shots at sure. major labels. And, and you bring up a good point that, you know, everyone enters into this deal. Okay. So... You know, I'm a little bit older now. I'm 40 years old now. So if there's one luxury I have, and there aren't many, um, (laughs) if there's one luxury I have, it's that I don't really have this huge, super big um, ambition. I mean, I'm I'm on a book tour. I love doing that. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to paint myself as like an an altruistic, awesome hippie who like, you know, is just perfectly, I mean, I'm here, you know on a tour talking to you doing interviews and then I have meetings with HBO to talk about making a series out of a book. So I'm, I'm, I have my ambition. I'm not trying to paint myself as an angel, but, um, I don't have this huge, like, it's got to happen by tomorrow. It's got to happen by the time I'm 30. I mean, things didn't even start happening for me until I was like 38. So, so I have a certain calmness about the ambition thing. So Having said that, it's like I now look at bands and I look at labels and I look at all that and I go, well, you're both entering into kind of a crazy thing. You know, you over there with the guitar, um, you know, you're a great player and you want your face on the cover of magazines. Okay, not a normal thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not criticizing it because, you know, I want to see this book and this thing and that thing and I want to, you know, but I'm just saying. You know, let's, it's not, it's also not normal to like live something and have to write, you know, 240 pages about it and then go into bookstores across the country and go, hi, everybody, I need to tell you about my thing. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping with the devil, but in publishing, it's like, it's not really the devil. It's like the devil's uh, custodian that you're sleeping with. (laughs) It's like the devil's, you know, assistant, assistant that you're sleeping with. Um, uh, It's, it's, it's a much smaller stakes, uh, moral compromise, but um, (laughs) 
you know, like everyone's entering into that deal and it is kind of weird. And I think everybody's expecting certain things. And, it, you know, I don't know how many people it's occurred to, but you can just play music. You know, you can play it. You can get a guitar. Your buddy can get some drums. You can talk about all the albums you love. There's clubs in every town. You can play music, you know, and with the Internet, obviously, if you want people to get it, they can get it. So maybe now more than ever with things like podcasts and MP3s and websites and essentially a virtual distribution network that goes around the world. You know, you can you can put your music all over the world without ever stuffing one envelope. Maybe now more than ever, it's um, it's a dubious, slightly dubious way to go about things, you know, sleeping. But the devil can still do wonderful things. The devil, you know. Still get your they, they, they do have the marketing muscle and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the devil's got an incredible marketing department, <laughs> and and they and they may be able to get you on Z one hundred. Yeah, I mean it's not you know I I think listen it's it's stupid. I'm uh, we're we're joking you know <laughs> we're joking about <laughs> Satan, but um, listen the majors have brought you know I mean I, I I can't sit here and take like easy shots at major labels because they brought every album that I fell in love with when I was a little boy, you know. So so it'd be completely hypocritical for me to sit here and be like, oh, dude, you know, like it's corporate, like they're they suck and blah blah blah. Because you know, if it wasn't for Sire, then I would have never heard Tim by the Replacements, and mm. if it wasn't for Island, then I wouldn't. Or, you know, if it wasn't for CBS, I wouldn't have heard the first U two seven inch single that I bought at the record store. So you know, if it wasn't for IRS, then where would REM, you know, have, how would it have gotten to me in some little nowhere town? So, uh, you know, the concept is a great concept. Labels are, are an important part of American, you know, cultural history. And, and I guess what I'm, what I'm writing about and what I'm commenting on today is sort of the discrepancy that, that occurs between the purity of, you know, like what Amit Erdogan started. I love music. This is essentially what the man was saying is I love music so much. I live it. I just want to live it and breathe it. I want to sign artists I believe in and get them out to people. And sure, you know, to to make some money and all that stuff. But what happens between that dream and what's happening today? What happens between that dream and what sort of corporate, you know, music has become? So give me two songs for our second song break that are... um, the uh, life changers for you, mm. the ones that um, would be those desert island picks, I guess. Mm. I would have to say "Broken Face" by the Pixies. Mm. That song um, was a huge watershed moment. Um, God, I'm such a like. I, I want to thumb through this iPod just because y- this will make my point more than anything about like how terribly sluttish and you know there's like there's like diggable planets devo duran duran um foo fighters guided by voices hoodoo gurus interpol then jackson brown like you know i it's it's almost a disturbing profile musically what i have on my ipod it's almost something that should be like in a in a in a um in like an FBI file, you know what I mean? Like, well, we're looking for clues. Well, he had the Repo Man soundtrack right next to, you know, uh, Jackson Brown and, you know, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. And then, uh, you know, um, you know, so I'm try- I, I look at so many albums. That, and whenever anyone says, like, what album changed your life or what, 
you know, I'm always like, oh God, if it just if it's not a song by the replacements, <laughs> you know, like what could it possibly be? You know, like I I don't know why, but I always credit them with like being I don't know the band that sort of just like completely blew my mind. Um, but um, if I said Straight to Hell by The Clash off Combat Rock, would you actually play it? Because I sure. don't think I've ever heard that song played except sure. for on my own means of playing Senior it. year in high school that came out for me, so... Same here. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was like my... That was the first record I got introduced to The Clash when I went, they had earlier ones. Yeah, same here. Right. And, and I always thought, I always thought um, Straight to Hell um, was... I, the thing that you start to realize about The Clash... You know, is it like, I mean, I loved him in high school, but then like the thing you start to realize about him is you're like, oh my God, here was a punk band like in the UK that would like, they would, they would play something like, you know, Rock the Casbah or London Calling. And then they'd turn around and do a song like Straight to Hell. It was just like, oh, it, was, it was, it was like genius savant. It's like, how did you go from that to this on the, you know, like, mm-hmm. I've, I've learned at the Clash that, that you, you can get into them when you're younger, but then when you get in your late 30s, you should go back and revisit them again because totally. you'll see them in a totally different light. Totally. Although appreciate I appreciate them very differently. Yeah, I do, although still feel too like um, ignorant to understand all the intelligent things that Joe Strummer was saying. So I still have to like <laughs> kind of fake like I have passion about like, you know, Sandinistas, screw them. Spanish bombs, man, <laughs> drop it on the walls. Do do that. You don't You don't bomb a wall, man. You know, like I have to totally fake the political savvy or the world order savvy to know what he was singing so passionately. Thus, why there's Wikipedia.
straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell. I don't know if you want to read this or if you want to paraphrase it, or uh, but we'll we'll turn to page forty-three, please. <laughs> Everybody in, in your in, in your, your hymn books. books. Um, and, uh, because we have so many musicians that, uh, listen to this and because of the fact that you were up there, uh, producing commercials and, and promotional material and things. So you had to basically stereotype everything down to a particular, uh, to, to match a particular demographic as you talk about with Phil Collins, uh, you know, to reach a particular type of female as you did with Jewel and trying to market this whole thing. So I thought that you could, if you could, you, you have a, you have a chapter that's headlined. So you want to be a chart topping rock and roll star embraced by a major label marketing executives in corporate radio. Well, listen now to what I say and you describe each one of the band members and what they should do. So I thought I would just let you, um, Take it away. Yeah, I should set this up just by saying that um, I, I this was written at a sort of spiritual low for me after coming out of a huge meeting where um, we were we watched these videos, um, you know, of this band, and um, we were told sort of by one of the the um, you know upper upper um, management people that. Uh, you know, one of the heavy hitters, as it were, that um, these guys, you know, we're going to be stars, period. That's the way it is. They are going to be. They have everything it takes. And it's, you know, it's our job to make that happen. Regardless of what consumers think. Regardless of what fans think. Regardless of what this band is doing on the screen, you know, as doing in the speakers, like... The decision has been made. Go. You know, like Johnny Bravo fits the suit. No excuses from you, please. You know, um, damn, damn the icebergs. Exactly. We're making New York in 12 hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was, so it was, it was and, um, and I, I just, um, it was a disheartening moment. And so anyway, I'll share this, um, this little passage from the book with listeners now and, and feel free to enjoy this as a free downloadable <laughs> MP3. Uh, from the book, not uh, written by you, by the way. You didn't like the book, <laughs> and it's uh, and you know enjoy it for free. Although having said that, I will crush you with a team of lawyers if you enjoy it for free. <laughs> so you want to be a chart-topping rock and roll star, embraced by major label marketing executives and corporate radio? Well, listen now to what I say. Number one, lead singer type. You need to have moves. Moves should be an odd combination of sexual advances and temper tantrums, punctuated with moments of apparent hypoglycemia. Best case scenario, you have long hair that is worked into the moves. If it helps, use some mnemonic devices or prompts to remember the order of choreography of the aforementioned moves. A. Where's your wallet? This will make you grab your ass with your right hand. B. Is your crotch okay? Push pelvis out, seeming to look down at it out of the corner of his eye and his head and hair will fall to the side a bit. C. Show me where the camera is. Lead singer points towards lens of video or television camera in performance. In live performance, change the prompt to, show me where the exit signs are. This should elicit a pointing motion to the horizon out past the audience. D. Can you see where we're sailing to, Captain? This will make him put one leg up on the monitor at the edge of the stage and look out. E. Shame on you. This will make him hang his head down with his arms at his side. Use this prompt during the long guitar solos that leave lead singer type without much to do. Two, lead guitarist. You should look bored as well as skilled in website development, including back-end architecture and server-side technology. You should also appear to be courting an iron deficiency in the blood. 
It should be unclear as to whether the iron deficiency is from long hours developing e-commerce and mobile blogging applications or touring with the band. 3. Bassists. Now, you should be prone to being emphatic with your instrument regardless of how simple the bass line to the song is. I've said this before and I'll say it again, bass players. I've only ever met one woman who understands that you aren't playing the guitar solo in the middle eight bars of the song. And the only reason she understood the difference between the lead guitarist and bass guitarist is because she was a brilliant bassist. So bottom line, when the guitarist is blazing away, go ahead and take a step forward with your bass and sell it with an intense rock face, humping motion, etc. Fourth, drummer. Now, uh, you should be even cuter than the lead singer if you want this band to be huge on a major label. It should be almost statistically improbable that you wound up doing anything in a band that doesn't involve your face being prominently displayed within savvy proximity to the front row. And in closing here, how did you get out of, I mean, even though, um, well, I won't give away the, the book, but you're not in the music industry now. So how did you come out of this not becoming cynical? Uh, well, you know. What gives you hope? Part of it is, is <clears throat> hmm. I, I guess that's just, uh, I'm not a religious man, you know, but, but, you know, you, you see a guy with a 22,000 square foot loft in Manhattan who's, you know, do, you know, you just see all this sort of weird debauchery and like brilliant bands falling through the cracks because they don't fit a plan like the one I just described or, or demos getting overproduced and screwed up because, you know, executives fear that the person is too old to, you know, be embraced by music fans or something weird like that when they're only like 30. Meanwhile, um, and you see enough of this stuff and, and you hear about some of the weird stuff, like people getting fired after 25 or 30 years with the company just so, you know, and then the people that fired them getting like, seven-figure, you know, bonuses that year based on what? Performance? Because sales have been down, you know, 25% or whatever. <laughs> so you see enough of that stuff. And I don't know, maybe it's just the way my parents raised me or something. I'm a pretty simple man, but I, I, I'm not religious, but I tend to just go, oh, that'll be sorted out later. Enjoy it now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming by. I wish you the best of luck with this book. And uh, we'll have to wait and see if there's going to be a, 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 a sequel. Yeah, I th I've, I've, I will just tell you this. Last week I was down in uh, Central America, and uh, in April I'm going to Nairobi. And if you can imagine me in any of those surroundings, um, you'll have a little bit of a clue as to what I'm working on. But it, I can tell you it's very weird and very funny. So now you're getting into the pirating version of it all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. AP Podcasts are recorded at Lava Room Recording Studio in Cleveland, Ohio, a New York City quality studio at Cleveland Prices. Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Rob Ortenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is all my fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com/slash Mike Shea AP. That's S-H-E-A like the stadium AP. 